You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Amen. 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 Well, good morning, everyone. Like Jeff said, my name is Matt. It's so good to see you all for worship. Uh, Thank you for making church part of your pregame today. Appreciate that. It's so amazing to be together so that we can be in God's presence together as a community and raise our voices in song and look to the scriptures and receive communion at the Lord's table and celebrate baptisms together. Um, And like Jeff said, hello to everyone on the live stream. Thank you for joining us today to check it out. It's, It's good to have you today. Or maybe you're part of the Vineyard family and you couldn't make it today, and you're watching later, so hello, happy Monday or Tuesday or whatever day you may be. Hope your week is, week is going good. Uh, thanks for catching this. Uh, I want to continue our series called Do You Believe in Aliens? We're working our way through the book of First Peter and how the apostle Peter referred to us as Christians as aliens and strangers or exiles how we don't belong here. And we looked last week at the alien concept of holiness, right? Today, we'll move to 1 Peter chapter 2. And so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there or follow along at votrweekly.org. I'll read it for us in just a few minutes. But have you ever met someone and it seems like they've got everything going for them? Like, They're on the fast track socially and financially and culturally. Just everything is lined up perfect. You ever met somebody like that? Well, I want to tell you the story of a man named William J. Seymour. William was not one of those people. We have a picture of William. Here he is. In fact, for William, it might have been the exact opposite of that. He was born just after the Civil War to emancipated slaves in Louisiana, and he grew up in harsh poverty. He lost his father too soon. He lost his left eye to a bout of smallpox. A young black man living in the antebellum South, he didn't pop up on anyone's 30 under 30 list of future change makers. In January 1906, William enrolled in Bible school in Houston, Texas, but there was a big problem. You see, Jim Crow laws prohibited William from sharing a classroom with white students. Even though he wasn't allowed to enter the classroom or participate in prayer meetings, Seymour was so hungry to learn that he sat outside and listened to lectures through a window, here's the school that he attended and the front porch where he sat to listen on the veranda there. Although he was chasing all that God had for him, he found himself literally on the outside looking in. William quickly grew tired of the racism at Bible school. But while he was there, he learned about the power of the Holy Spirit. And soon he accepted an invitation to pastor a small black church in Los Angeles. 
And his arrival caused quite a stir because he passionately preached that people could experience the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit just like it was described in the book of Acts. A conviction that he held deeply even though he had not yet personally seen it. Not everyone was convinced. After about a month, his denomination leaders padlocked his church to stop Williams preaching. And once again, he found himself on the outside looking in. But William pressed on. This penniless preacher started a small group that met in the home of Richard and Ruth Asbury at 216 North Bonnie Bray Street. Here's a picture of the house where they met. It's on Bonnie Bray Street in in Los Angeles. It's still there today. After about five weeks of meeting as a small group, on April 9, 1906, something completely supernatural happened in the group. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit gave people the ability to speak other languages. Just like they'd been studying in Acts chapter 2. It was so powerful that some of them fell out of their seats. After a while, one woman in the group named Jenny Evans Moore got up from the floor. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she went over to the Asbury's piano in their living room and began to play beautiful songs, even though she had never played the piano before. Here's a photo of some of the folks in that early small group. William is there front and center, and Jenny is in the back row, third from the left. The two of them later got married. Well, as you can imagine, what was happening in their small group started to spread like wildfire. And for the next several days, they had to preach from the front porch of the Asbury's house to to curious crowds who came from all across the city. And eventually, the, the crush of people actually caused the front porch of the house to collapse under the weight. And luckily, no one was hurt, but it was very clear that they needed a more suitable place to hold their meetings. And so they rented an empty church building at 312 Azusa Street for $8 a month. (laughs) The building had recently been used as stables, so you know, there was a certain odor. It might have smelled worse than the the Love Foco Resource Center currently (laughs) does if you just toured that with us. We know a thing or two about spaces that need a little TLC to get up and running. So they cleaned out this old vacant building and they made a bunch of crude benches for seating and they stacked two wooden crates on top of each other for a makeshift pulpit. And on the day before Easter, April 14th, 1906, the Apostolic Faith Gospel Mission held its first meeting in what became known as the Azusa Street Revival. Here's the the church where they met. After just a few days, hundreds of people flocked to the revival. The entire city of Los Angeles was stirred. There were reports from onlookers at a distance who believed that a building must be on fire. So they went to see what was happening, only to encounter the presence of God. On the front page of the LA Times read, Weird Babel of Tongues on April 18th. Some other articles in there too, but 
the media coverage just fueled the fire. And by mid-May, get this, upwards of 1,500 people would attempt to squeeze into that 60 by 40 building every day. The gatherings began at 10 a.m. and lasted till midnight, seven days a week, and that continued for three years. From the start of the revival, women held significant leadership roles, and they welcomed all who would come. White, black, Latino, Native American, rich, poor, illiterate, well-educated, skeptical, and sincere, all crowded into this small meeting hall to see what God was doing. And this, my friends, was supernatural. Remember, this, this happened in 1906, the very year that recorded more lynchings than any other. And 14 years before women's suffrage, this happened. First-hand accounts poured out of their meetings that the blind could see and the deaf could hear and diseases were cured instantly and spontaneous songs sounded like angelic choirs and immigrants heard the gospel in their native language from ordinary folks who had clearly never learned to speak it. They were able to speak by supernatural ability. So, what started out as a small group led by a rejected pastor resulted in revival that reached the entire world. Thousands found salvation in Jesus. People carried what they saw and experienced at Azusa Street across the nation. Churches were started. Countless missionaries were sent out. Movements were born that still impact the world today. In fact, the Vineyard Movement, our own church, can trace our roots directly back to the work of William J. Seymour at Azusa Street. Just like Timberline Church and Vintage City Church and so many other great churches right here in northern Colorado all began there at Azusa Street. Today, there are an estimated 600 million Pentecostal and Charismatic Christians around the globe. And that all started in the Asbury's living room. It's not bad for someone who never would have been chosen, right? Unbelievable. So let's turn our attention to the scriptures. I want to read 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. And I want to unpack these two verses using uh, these two focuses, who we are and what we do. So as you listen to the scripture, think about who we are and what we do. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, thank you for your word to us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you now to quicken it, to make it come alive to us. Would you open our hearts and open our minds to all that you are doing and saying? Let your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. So this frame of who we are and what we do. Let's look at number one, who we are. And who are we? Let's summarize pretty nicely there in verse 9, right? The first thing is that we are a chosen people. We're a chosen people. We have been chosen by God. And notice that it says chosen, not choice. We're not like the choice real estate here in Fort Collins or a choice piece of meat from the butcher shop here in town or, or any of the thousands of other reasons that, that make Fort Collins the choice city. Right? We're not prime. We're not the best. We're, we're not the obvious choice. This isn't spiritual elitism that puts us above anyone. We're chosen by God regardless of the analytics, maybe in spite of the analytics. God has always chosen this way. And if we chase it back to when he first chose people, look at what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, For you are a holy people, sounds familiar, who belong to the Lord your God, of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations, for they were, you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God choose them? They weren't the biggest and the best. God chose them because he loves them. It was unmerited favor, unmerited love. And now through Jesus, that unmerited love is extended to us. And so even if on paper, you're the last to be chosen, even in the face of rejection, we're chosen by the only one who matters. And y'all, that, that puts us in some pretty good company. Alongside Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, the crucified king, and alongside William Seymour, shut out of his classroom and locked out of his church. Just like them, were chosen by God. And verse 9 continues. It says we are a holy nation. Or more literally, a holy ethnicity. And Peter is using these terms from the Old Testament. Did you notice how much similarity there was from the passage in 1 Peter and the passage in Deuteronomy? Peter's using these, these terms from the Old Testament that up until then, they were only used to describe Israel, Abraham's descendants. But now he turns it and he applies it to people of all kinds of racial backgrounds, all kinds of ethnic groups scattered across modern day Turkey and lots of different churches that shared this letter and passed it around. And yet, Peter called them one race. How, how can that be? They weren't related. 
They weren't related by blood. Oh, oh, but they were. They were joined together by the blood of Jesus. And it was the blood of Jesus that broke down the walls of race and gender at Azusa Street. That's what led an eyewitness of that revival and a historian, Frank Bartleman, to write, the color line was washed away in the blood. I love that. Jesus' blood didn't wash away the colors, just the line of separation. This holy nation is a new ethnicity that blankets over borders and bloodlines. It supersedes station and socioeconomics. It reaches every race. And so in John the Revelator's vision, he saw every tribe and tongue and nation all distinct and all gathered together around the throne of God worshiping. It's the household of God. That in Jesus, we've all been made his family. Check out what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says about this stunning verse. He says, all these things were spoken before of ethnic Israel. Peter believed that all God's promises to Israel had been fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus himself. And that therefore, all who belonged to Jesus had now been brought into that people of God, that true temple. The one true God was now living in them. The temple had been rebuilt, but not in Jerusalem, but all around the world. So let's keep reading in verse 9. It says that we're God's special possession. God's special possession. In the old King James Version of the Bible, it says, peculiar people. Peculiar. I mean, if the shoe fits. There's not actually a great translation for this in English. And so in the NIV, it it says God's special possession because that sort of hints at the connotations that Peter pulled directly from Deuteronomy of treasure. This is treasure, a prized possession, that special belonging that you keep in an equally special place of honor. You set it aside. You lay it up. Think of all your possessions. And now think of that one that you treasure the most. For me, it's probably like guitars and musical instruments the house is on fire and I'm outside and I like run in and there's my children and there's my guitars. <laughs> so we have a dilemma here. I kid, I kid. It's definitely the guitars. <clears throat> that's through Jesus, that's us in the eyes of the Father. His special treasure. So who are we? Who are we? According to verse 9, we're a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession. And you might have noticed that we skipped royal priesthood 
from the verse. And, and that's because it speaks not only to our, our group identity as priesthood, but it also begins to speak to our second point, what we do. What we do. So, number one, who we are. Number two, what we do. We're a royal priesthood. Now, if you grew up Catholic, maybe you have some familiarity with what priests do. Otherwise, you might have a hard time describing it beyond like the special collar, right? Or maybe some horror movies that you've seen. We need a working definition of priests so that we can understand what Peter means when he calls us that, that we are priests in this royal priesthood. And a great place to start for that definition is the book of Hebrews in the Bible. And so I want to read from Hebrews chapter 7. Listen to this in verse 23. It says, There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But Jesus lives forever, so priesthood, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. So let me back up. Historically, every culture that we have records from throughout time, regardless of their location on the globe, regardless of what religion they practiced, they all had priests, without exception. And this reveals something about humanity. It reveals something about us, something intrinsic within our souls, that in our innermost being, we understand that we cannot freely come before a God, that we need someone to stand between us and God. We need a mediator. And so a priest is someone who stands between a man and his God to give offerings, to make sacrifices, to appease the gods, to, to do whatever it takes to keep the, the man and the woman in good standing with the God in question, right? So that's the primary job description of priests. And here in Hebrews chapter 7, we see Jesus, the perfect and eternal high priest, engaged in two priestly activities. What's he up to in these verses? Well, first, as a mediator, he is saving all who come to God through him. He's the high priest. That's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore as Christians because we believe that Jesus did it once and for all and that when we go to God through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, we can approach God boldly. When he became our sacrifice, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was, was torn from top to bottom and, and access was opened for all. And it says that Jesus is able to save completely all who come through him. But look at what else our high priest is doing. The second part of verse 25 says, He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. 
He's praying. He's praying. He's using his eternal priesthood to pray for us. We see it here in Hebrews 7 and also in Romans 8 and in 1 John chapter 2 that he is forever at the right hand of the Father, even right now, interceding for us. Peter, who wrote this letter that we're studying, he was the recipient of Jesus' prayers because in Luke chapter 22, Jesus told him that he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And in John chapter 17, Jesus even prayed for us, you and me, for all the future people who would follow him. He is our mediator and our advocate to the Father. So, The saving part of priesthood, that's all Jesus, right? We can't save anyone. But this praying part, that's a priestly example that we can follow. It's not reserved for the extra spiritual people. We can all serve as priests when we pray on behalf of others. When we intercede with God on their behalf. Do you do that? Do you pray for others? Or do you only talk to God about yourself and your own needs for your team to win tonight? Even that's not a prayer for others, right? It's just this thinly veiled thing that you're praying because now you regret taking the under and you need the defense to step up. No, priestly prayers lift others up. pleading for their salvation with the Father, for them to be reconciled with God, praying for their healing, for their needs. Do you realize that when you pray for them, you're joining Jesus in prayer? A lot of times people don't know what to pray. But when you pray for someone else, you're following Jesus' example in prayer. You're joining God's mission, transforming all things. And so prayer is part of what Peter means when he says we're a royal priesthood. We talk to God on behalf of people. And as priests, we talk to people on behalf of God. Look at the rest of verse 9 in in 1 Peter 2. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. If you're reading another version of the Bible, it might say there proclaim or show or announce. We declare the praises of him. That is the job of priests. Because of who we are What we do is show others the goodness of God. We declare his excellencies. And that can feel really intimidating. Like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to say. This verse gives us the perfect starting point if you're not sure how to begin. It's by recounting what God has done for us. What we have seen and experienced firsthand that he has called us out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. When we share our story, how God has rescued us, it's a powerful priestly activity. 
There's something so significant about recalling and retelling our firsthand account of salvation. It opens the door for others to come to the Father, just like we came through Jesus. And as you invite them, your words are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So think back to William J. Seymour and his story. He was an incredible example of the royal priesthood. In the midst of the most intense revival meetings, he could be seen with his head buried in one of the wood crates that they used for that makeshift pulpit. Praying. Praying for the people in that gathering. Praying on behalf of others. And, and then he'd stand up and boldly proclaim what God had done. And he welcomed all would come, all who would come. Look again at the side of his church building. Whosoever will may come. He took that really seriously. He even welcomed the ones who had locked him out of his church. He was a man who knew who he was and springing from that sure identity in Christ of being chosen by God, he knew exactly what to do as part of the royal priesthood. And so as we think about this personally, who we are and what we do, how will you respond? Let's pray.